For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi. Welcome to another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassinet. Uh, as we begin our podcast today, I unfortunately have some uh, sad news to report. Uh, today we lost a dear and trusted member of the family that had been with us since 1984. That's the same year that uh, Jan and I were married. Uh, at the time we were starving students at the uh, University of Wyoming and like many students in college we were on a pretty tight budget. I always told her that uh, we were on the austerity program for most of our uh, lives in school and so at that time we thought we'd try and save a little bit of money by buying a uh, small freezer and buying our meat in bulk rather than by pound each week and so we started looking for used freezers and eventually responded to an advertisement. We went and uh, checked out this uh, freezer that was uh, advertised for $25 and well that's when we met and that was the beginning of uh, an almost 40 year relationship. Uh, It was a little Maytag chest freezer probably about 15 cubic feet. Uh, The seller said that it was 15 to 20 years old, but assured us that it worked like a charm. And so, you know, we're sitting there weighing $25, 15 to 20 years old. (laughs) So so we went ahead and uh, we bought it. And uh, we used it uh, continually for 40 years. And uh, Jack, my youngest son, went out this morning to the garage and discovered that uh, some of the items in the top of the freezer were still frozen, but they felt a little bit soft. And so uh, he came in and reported. We, of course, called the uh, coroner, and uh, he weighed and uh, did some uh, measurements of temperature and figured out that uh, probably our, uh, our 40-year-old freezer had probably given up the ghost sometime yesterday. And... Uh, But imagine that, a freezer that we bought for $25 uh, that we used continuously for 40 years and uh, it finally gave up the ghost and it was already 15 to 20 years old. So this is like a a 50 or 60 year old freezer and uh, it was built like a Sherman tank and probably weighed almost as much. The only thing that I ever did uh, to uh, do any kind of repair on this was to uh, put a, a new lock on it because the uh, the lock had broken and we put some duct tape on it <laughs> because some of the interior panels were kind of falling apart. But uh, at any rate, 50 to 60 years old and finally is no longer with the family and it's it's almost like a treasured heirloom. So, so, um, so we're a little distraught. Uh, this could be a little bit of an emotional podcast for us. Uh, Um, But the thing that I think about as I think of my 50 to 60 year old faithful freezer is they just don't make them like
like that anymore. And isn't it the truth? And uh, that same motto or saying uh, applies to what we're going to be talking about today in uh, this podcast, because today we're going to be focused on a prophecy given by Daniel the prophet from the Old Testament called the 70 Weeks Prophecy. And it has a lot to do with our departed friend, the freezer, because when it comes to prophecies, they just don't make them like this anymore. And that's the reality of it. And uh, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, I I thought this was a podcast devoted to unveiling Jesus Christ through the eyes of John the Revelator in the book of Revelator. So why are we even discussing an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Daniel? Now, if you back up a few uh, podcasts ago, you'll remember that I did a podcast on the canonization of the Bible, including the decisions that were made to include the book of Revelation in the Bible canon. And one of the things that they looked for was the authenticity of the writings in the book of Revelation. And they did so based on similarities of the content in the book of Revelation with uh, prophecies that are found in the Old Testament, including people like Daniel and Ezekiel. And so the reality of it is Uh, There's much that is written in the book of Daniel that relates directly to the book of Revelation, so much so that you really can't fully understand the content and meaning of the book of Revelation if you don't have the contextual understanding that's provided by the book of the Old Testament, including specifically the book of Daniel. It's a a little bit like, you know, watching a... uh, a a trilogy of movies uh, like Lord of the Rings or or Back to the Future, you get down to that third and that last movie in the trilogy where they assume if you're watching the third one, you already know the characters from the first and second movies. And uh, that's a little bit like the book of Revelation. It's the last book in in the New Testament, but it kind of assumes that you know something about the prophecies and revelations that give you the context for what is being taught in the book of Revelation. You know, think of it this way. Have you ever... Have you ever listened to a, uh, a song or you hear a song and it's a song that you may have heard when you were a teenager and you hear it again and all of a sudden it brings back all of these memories and it brings context and it's just kind of a part of you and, and it's the same thing with smells. Um, right? Sometimes you go buy something and you smell something that you've smelled from your youth and uh, it takes you back to that place and uh, it's become part of you really. And I mean, I had that experience when I was growing up. I grew up on, as I've mentioned a number of times on my grandfather's ranch. Well, we used to have, we I say, not so much me. I was just a, a kid. But uh, my grandfather had uh, this dairy. It wasn't a big dairy, probably somewhere between 50 and 75 head of uh, Holsteins, I assume. And and I used to go out in the dairy barn in the early mornings, and uh, I'll never forget the smell of warm milk and manure. (laughs) 
So, you know, I mean, not exactly a glamorous smell to be remembering, but uh, I, I have to tell you, it stuck with me and those memories, they come alive when I smell uh, warm milk and manure. And so uh, many, many years later, after we'd had children and we were living uh, in a uh, house down south of Sacramento out in the dairy country, we used to drive by this very large dairy every day coming to and from town. And uh, whenever you drive by it, they were probably milking, you know, three shifts a day, 24-7. And so you couldn't drive by this dairy and not smell the same smell that I uh, smelled as a young boy, that manure and warm milk. (laughs) So we would drive by there. And so one of the things we we did is the kids were growing up, we'd drive by and I'd I'd take a, I'd roll down the windows and they'd all get mad at me because they didn't like the smell, but I'd roll down the window and I'd take a big whiff of that and oh, doesn't that just smell great? And uh, all the kids are back in the backseat there gagging and <laughs> acting like they're ready to throw up and yelling at me because I got the windows rolled down driving by the dairy. Except for my youngest son at the time, Joshua. Now, Josh was, you know, he was always uh, trying to play against the others a little bit and uh, wanting to stand out. And so he would take a big whiff of it, just like dear old dad. And uh, he'd say, yeah, that really smells great, dad. (laughs) And so this went on for quite a long time. And then one day I was driving alone with Josh going back to the house. And you didn't even have to roll down the windows and you could always smell the the manure and... uh, warm milk smell and uh, so I took a big whiff and oh doesn't that just smell great and then I kind of was turning over because he was over in the passenger seat uh, to my right and uh, he took a big smell and said yeah and uh, acting like he's breathing it all in and then he was kind of quiet and uh, and then he got my attention and I looked over him and he says dad why do we like that smell <laughs> So all of a sudden, he had come of age. But uh, I'll tell you what, you put that smell next to me, and I, it takes me back to my childhood. It takes me back to a, uh, a kind of a funny moment with my, uh, my son Joshua. But uh, essentially, as we talk about this, uh, the book of Revelation and its relationship to the book of Daniel in particular, and the 70 weeks prophecy, it's like, you know, you read, you read these things and it takes you back to those ancient times. I, I wonder sometimes what John must have thought as he was having these visions about uh, future events and uh, seeing the vision of the Savior and these uh, remarkable visions of angels and uh, things that are still for us that lie in the future. And uh, he, he lived with the Savior and was taught at his knee for three and a half years. And it must have had this rush of feeling come back to him about all that he had learned about these Old Testament prophets. And so in a very real sense, um, we see, we understand prophecy through the lens of the past. And uh, so that's why I'm kind of having these uh, sort of deja vu moments here and and thinking back over history, because even though we're talking about the book of Revelation, 
and uh, what it teaches us about our day and our future day, um, it all begins with prophecies that were made in the Old Testament, including specifically Daniel, who was uh, one of the great visionaries of the uh, Old Testament. So with that little bit of an introduction in mind, what we're going to be talking about today with the 70 weeks prophecy is ultimately the date on which their second coming can be expected. Now, no one knows the precise time of the second coming, and we learn in Joseph Smith, Matthew 140, that even the angels don't know the time, that only the Father knows. And uh, uh, But uh, if you compare what was said in the Joseph Smith, Matthew version in the New Testament about the fact that angels and even Christ himself didn't know what the timing would be for the second coming when you go to the doctrine and covenants in section 49 verse 7 it states again that the angels don't know what the date of the second coming would be nor shall they know but there's no mention of christ himself and so i've always kind of wondered uh, ever since the savior has been resurrected i suspect that he probably now knows but uh, it hasn't trickled down to uh, the angels yet now, one of the important things you need to understand about the date of the second coming is, of course, it's a fixed date. It's never going to change. There is a specific day, there's a specific hour that is known to God when Jesus will set his foot again on this earth in connection with the second coming. And we know that this date is fixed just the same way that the date of his birth was fixed. We know this because, for example, the Nephites knew from very early on in their migration to the Americas that uh, Christ would be born 600 years from the time that Lehi left with his family to sail across the, uh, the many waters uh, to get to the American continent. And so because Lehi's date of departure didn't ever change and was known, um, so too was the, the birth of the Savior. And it, so in that connection, as we think about the second coming, we also have to understand that it doesn't matter how righteous the people on the earth are. It doesn't matter how bad they are, how wicked they are. There are no circumstances that will exist in our future that can alter the set time for the coming of Jesus Christ. And it's often described as him coming as a thief in the night. So even though we've got a fixed date, it's going to be unexpected um, particularly for those people who aren't ready, but it is certain to happen, just as it was in the days of Noah when it's recorded that uh, everyone was eating and drinking and making merry right up to the very time that the uh, fountains of the deep opened and the earth began to uh, flood and there was lots of rain and a lot of other really uh, kind of horrifying stuff. But anyway, we have all of these signs of the time that talk to us and teach us about the coming of Jesus Christ and how it's going to happen very soon in the in the near future and they help us to understand these things and so the book of Revelation is one of those things that help us do that but a lot of the information in the book of Revelation doesn't nail things down specifically it gives us a chronological sequence of when things are supposed to happen but it doesn't give us specific dates and that's the beauty 
of the 70 weeks prophecy because in that prophecy, Daniel actually gives specific dates of when things are supposed to happen. And so I put together the book of Revelation on the one hand with Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy on the other hand, you put those two together and there's this synergistic effect that now I can see a lot of detail provided to me by John in the book of Revelation setting forth this chronological series of events and then I turn to the 70 weeks prophecy and Daniel to provide specific time periods in which these things are supposed to occur and so that's why I sometimes refer to the uh, the book of Revelation it's like a Rosetta Stone that helps to keep the signs straight and also with the help of the book of Daniel and the 70 weeks prophecy, we then can understand the specific timing of things. And so uh, these things are uh, uh, going to be important to us as we continue to get closer to that day. So let's talk a little bit now, and I'm going to give you an overview of what the 70 weeks prophecy is and how it gives a specific sequence and timing for both the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is one of the few revelations that actually gives specific timelines of when these events are supposed to occur. So with the, the timeline given by Daniel, coupled with the detail about the latter-day signs of the times found in the book of Revelation, we get a pretty clear picture of when the second coming is supposed to occur. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to sit here at the end of this podcast and tell you it's going to occur on this specific date. I've done the math and this is when it is. I mean, you'd all be sitting here turning me off thinking, oh, this guy's a crackpot. Um, So I can't do that, but I can give you some specifics that I think will help you to understand uh, when the second coming is going to occur. And I hope that that will be helpful to you in your preparations for that time. Now, for some of you, you say, well, if you can just tell me when it's going to be, then I can kind of procrastinate right up until the 11th hour. And I, I don't think that is the intent. And I suspect that's the whole reason why God the Father doesn't actually reveal the date because uh, I think he knows uh, how we are, uh, how most people are in terms of being perennial procrastinators. So at any rate, by way of further background, just to give you an idea of the significance of the 70 weeks prophecy that's found in the ninth chapter of Daniel, I wanted to just tell you what some commentators have said in regard to this particular prophecy. So one of them is uh, Elder George Reynolds. He was a uh, Latter-day Saint leader of the church. He was never an apostle, but uh, he was a member of the Quorum of the uh, Seventy. He lived from 1842 to 1909. He wrote a six-volume treatise on the book of Revelation. You may also recognize that uh, uh, Brother Reynolds uh, is famous or was made famous by the United States Supreme Court case of uh, called Reynolds versus the United States. This was an 1878 case that the Supreme Court heard and that's the case that uh, decided that the uh, anti-bigamy laws and anti-polygamy laws that had been enacted by Congress were uh, constitutional. And so George Reynolds was essentially the test case 
for the legality of the anti-bigamy and anti-polygamy laws uh, way back when. And he went to prison because he basically went into the trial court, admitted that he was a polygamist, and so he was convicted, and then it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and he actually uh, served time in prison for, uh, for his uh, illegal relationship with multiple wives. Eventually he was pardoned, by the President of the United States, but that's that's a little bit more of the history of George Reynolds. So he did a six-volume treatise on the Book of Mormon, and in one of his writings he described the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel as one of the grandest predictions on record. And so that's what he had to say. And you're sitting here now thinking to yourself, well, why, why have I never heard about this particular uh, revelation and this prophecy if it's that big of a deal. And we'll get into that in a minute, but consider also what Matthew Henry said, another biblical commentator. He said, it's the most illustrious prediction of Christ in all the Old Testament. There's another uh, famous uh, uh, scholars, uh, pair of scholars, Kyle and Dilich, um, who um, said, and they, they did a, a, a whole commentary on the entire Old Testament. It also is a multi-volume work. But they said, it's the most important revelations regarding the kingdom of God. So now you, you hear these people describing this and uh, you, you have to wonder, well, how come I've never heard of it? What, why is it that I don't understand what this is? And the reason is, is because it's a very, very complex prophecy that's difficult to understand, it's difficult to interpret, and there are many conflicting interpretations about what this prophecy means. Everybody agrees it's the most spectacular thing ever to hit the Old Testament, but we, we just can't figure out exactly what it's, what it's meaning. Um, and so, for example, another uh, writer by the name of Albert Barnes, he lived from 1798 to uh, 1870. Um, if you look right behind me, for those of you who are looking at the, uh, the visual uh, podcast, I'll turn just a little bit to one side, and you see these, these golden books here right behind me, it's uh, 14 volumes. That's the, uh, the biblical commentary that was uh, written by uh, Albert Barnes. And, and what he said about it, he was, uh, also had many platitudes for uh, the importance and significance of the uh, 70 Weeks Prophecy, but he also said that volumes could be written about the contradictions that people have come up with in describing what this prophecy means. So in, there are generally three views of how people interpret the 70 weeks prophecy. One uh, viewpoint is that it is a prophecy from the period, or it's a prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ up until the time of the Roman destruction of the uh, temple in Jerusalem and Jerusalem, which occurred in 70 AD. So it's kind of a, a historical view that then ends at 70 AD. Now, the uh, majority of the people believe that uh, the prophecy deals entirely with events back in the uh, period of a uh, really bad guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphany. He was a uh, Greek leader over uh, 
Jerusalem, uh, yeah, Jerusalem and the Jews, <clears throat> and uh, he profaned the temple and uh, caused a lot of problems. And so uh, a lot of people think that uh, this prophecy deals with uh, what he did uh, among the Jews and to the Jews in about the period of uh, 168 BC. The, the more modern view is that the um, 70 weeks prophecy uh, deals with the uh, period of time from the end of the Jewish captivity, which is roughly in 536 BC until the second coming. And so the modern view is actually the, the, the correct view of what this prophecy deals with in part. It's not exactly that, but and we'll talk about what the, uh, the meaning is, but uh, that is a very close uh, recognition and correct interpretation of the 70 weeks prophecy. And you, you can understand why today uh, people would have a different view about the 70 weeks prophecy than in the past because we have the benefit of historical hindsight of knowing when certain things happened. Uh, and we can correlate because Daniel's using specific time frames to fulfill and describe certain events. And so we can now, with the benefit of hindsight, we can start figuring out when these things are. And so the 70 weeks prophecy essentially covers a period of time not too long after the Jewish captivity. And then it does continue and give specific time periods of when the second coming is going to occur. Now the prophecy itself is very short uh, and is found in Daniel chapter 9. And to give you a little context, what's going on is Daniel is now living in Babylon. He was taken captive into Babylon in about 606 BC or 605 BC roughly. And uh, he was a prophet of the exile. And uh, so uh, there were prophecies that uh, the exile was going to last 70 years, specifically Jeremiah prophesied to that effect. And so now Daniel is living in roughly 536 BC. So he's been there 70, more than 70 years, or roughly 70 years. And he's starting to wonder, when are we supposed to be going home? And so he offers this prayer to the Lord kind of acknowledging in the first place that uh, the Jews were taken captive by Babylon because they had forsaken the Lord. And so all of their hardships and their difficulties, their trials, everything that had befallen them that was really ugly and, uh, and just really bad, we deserved it. <laughs> it was essentially the message that he was praying about. But then he says, but even so, uh, you know, we've been here for 70 years now, and isn't it about time that uh, we get to go back home? And it was at that moment that the angel Gabriel, who we know to be Noah, appears to Daniel and uh, reveals this uh, prophecy called the 70 Weeks Prophecy. And it's not just an answer to his prayer about when the 70-year exile was going to end. It was this grand prophecy that described the history and the Lord's dealings with the Jewish people and with Jerusalem all the way through the culminating events of the second coming. And, and Gabriel 
does all this in just four verses. And they're found in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. So if you're not otherwise engaged and you want to whip out your Old Testament and open up to Daniel 9, 24 through 27, because we're going to spend some time going through the language of these verses. And so for those of you uh, like my uh, brother-in-law who uh, listened to me on the podcast while he's commuting, you know, I'm going to read it um, and then I'm going to repeat some of it again so you'll get it all. And, uh, you know, the only thing I could tell my brother-in-law is pay attention to the road. Uh, don't get in some kind of uh, trance listening to these great prophecies and run off the road or anything. So here we are. I'm going to read these verses. And for those of you who are listening or uh, uh, watching this on YouTube on my channel, Unveiling Jesus Christ, um, we'll put it up on the screen so you have the benefit of seeing it as well. So it starts out and says this, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince, that shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. The end. <laughs> I know, it sounds like Greek. Well, it was written in Hebrew because that's the language of the Old Testament, but I know it sounds like Greek. I just, and it's a huge mouthful. And so I appreciate you indulging me in that, reading the whole thing, but it's just going to give you a flavor of what it is that we have to work ourselves through in this podcast to understand how this prophecy is predicting specific timelines for both the first coming of Jesus Christ and for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so we're just going to uh, break this down a little bit and uh, keeping in mind that uh, this prophecy was given at the time the Jews were getting ready to return from their captivity in Babylon, which happened in about 536 BC. When this prophecy was received, many Jews thought that the Savior would come at the end of the 70 years. 
And so uh, Daniel is having this prophecy, and it was misinterpreted early on because they didn't have the benefit of historical hindsight. Now, I probably have mentioned how this return from exile in Babylon actually happened. I'm just going to repeat that history very briefly so that we have the context of what's going on here. And so you had essentially Babylon, who was the mightiest kingdom in the ancient world that fell in a single night to uh, King Cyrus, who was a Persian king. And uh, after Cyrus defeated the Babylonian Empire, he issued an edict that allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. That was then followed up with the rebuilding of the second temple by Zerubbabel. And so that temple got its name from him because he was the governor in uh, Jerusalem at the time uh, that it was constructed. Now, you have to keep in keep in mind that um, when we begin talking about the 70 weeks prophecy, it talks about the fact in verse 25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks, etc., etc. So he's, the, the prophecy actually begins not specifically when the Jews leave their captivity in Babylon, but it occurs from the time that the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem and the walls of the city. That's not the edict that King Cyrus issued in 536 B.C., what Cyrus issued as an edict in 536 BC was for the rebuilding of the second temple of Zerubbabel. Okay, now naturally there's a lot of other infrastructure that goes on and, and the, the Jews returning and so on and so forth, but uh, we're going to be talking about another edict. And so this is just uh, the historical context for um, what we're going to be talking about in a, in a minute. But this edict that was given by, uh, by King Cyrus uh, is identified in the in the book of uh, Daniel and Nehemiah um, and other places. And it, this was also the subject of a prophecy by Isaiah 140 years before Cyrus issued his edict for the Jews to return and to go and build the temple. It's kind of interesting because here we get secular uh, information and ancient uh, records uh, from canoeiforms and other things like this. For example, the British Museum today has what's called the Cyrus Cylinder that is dated back to 536 BC. Um, it's, a, it's like this cylinder that's about nine inches long and the, uh, the text of it confirms this biblical prophecy that the Jews were uh, given the right and the privilege to go back to build the uh, temple in Jerusalem. And in fact, uh, we have additional information that's provided by the uh, Jewish historian by the name of Josephus who said that Cyrus actually read the prophecy of Isaiah that identified Cyrus by name as the liberator of the Jews and the one who would allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem to build the temple. And when he read that prophecy, he was inspired by it. And that was part of the motivation 
for his willingness to issue this edict for the uh, release of the Jews and their privilege to go back and uh, to uh, build the temple. And so that's all the background that kind of leads up to this 70 weeks prophecy that uh, Daniel then receives. And he's getting the prophecy in roughly 536 BC. Again, that's near the end of the 70 year captivity but the vision that he's going to get is going to take this information about the 70 years that the Jews were in captivity and that then becomes the foundational structure for the 70 weeks prophecy. So in other words, we had the Jews in captivity for 70 years and then you'll recall that the prophecy starts talking about this 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. That doesn't refer to the 70 years that the Jews were in captivity in Babylon. Rather, that just simply provides the prophetic foundation for what is going to be described as 70 weeks or 70 sevens. All right. So you, I, I've already given a podcast previously on uh, this idea of uh, numerology. So if you're wondering why seven and why 77s and all that, uh, go back and take a listen to the podcast that talks about the significance of the number seven and seven sevens and 70 and these types of things. And so that would be helpful to you. But you just need to understand that these 70 weeks are the basis for why we call this the 70 weeks prophecy. So it becomes the 70 years in Babylon become the prophetic pattern that established that 70 weeks referred to in the prophecy is 70 weeks of years. So when we're talking about 70 weeks, we're really talking 70 times 7 years, which totals 490 years. Okay, So all of this math, I know it's going to be challenging here to, to kind of keep up with it. And so we'll, we'll do the best that we can. But uh, the basic premise that you need to understand of the 70 weeks prophecy, it is really a prophecy about these 70 weeks of 7 years totaling 490 years. And in fact, the Hebrew word that is often translated as weak actually means 70. So in this context, it means 70 weeks or 70 sevens. All right. And so it's the same kind of symbolism that is used when Peter was asked in Matthew, uh, when Peter asked in Matthew 18, 21, he said, uh, he asked the Savior, he says, uh, how often do I have to forgive people? Seven times? And what was the answer that the Savior gave? Of course, it was no. Seven times 70 is the uh, requirement for the forgiveness of people. And so these 70 weeks <clears throat> are basically a divine or prophetic weeks of years. Uh, but it again, it finds its foundation in the 70 years of Jewish captivity that went from roughly 606 BC to 536 BC when Daniel was receiving the, uh, the vision. Now, when I read through the prophecy fairly quickly, you probably didn't pick up the fact that it identifies six separate statements that serve to determine 
the period of prophetic time. And the word determined is actually found in the verse. And it's the only place that this word appears in the Old Testament. And it has the meaning to divide, to appoint, or to destinate. In the Chaldean, uh, this particular word uh, means to cut such that when it talks about these things are determined in these prophetic periods, it's like uh, cutting fabric from a pattern uh, for a definite person purpose. So when you, when you know, my wife likes to make clothes, and, and so uh, she, bought, she goes down to the store, whatever it is, and I never go with her, I can't remember all the names, but she buys a pattern and then she kind of pins the pattern on the fabric and then cut, 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 cut. You just follow the pattern and, uh, and that gives you what you need when it comes time to sew the, uh, the dress or whatever it is together. And so that's what it means when these six statements determined the period of prophetic time. It's like this pattern that has been established, it's been cut out, it's been set, it is for a definite purpose, and it is for a definite time. And so the the first of the three, the, the, let me back up just a moment, because essentially these six statements are broken down into two groups, and they're two groups of three. Two times three equals six um, that fix the prophetic times, and the groups are kind of antithetical and they they correlate with each other so the first statement number one correlates to number four number two correlates to number five number three correlates to number six and the first three in group number one all relate to Christ's first coming and the second group of three all relate to Christ's second coming so now what I'm going to do, having given you that little bit of an explanation, is we're going to, now I'm going to read Daniel 9.24 once again, and you'll pick up where these, these two groups of three come to pass. So I'm going to interject a little bit of discussion now as we go through this verse again. So it starts out saying, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, and upon the holy city. I've mentioned the 70 weeks that has its foundation in the 70 years that the Jews spent in exile in Babylon. And notice here when it talks about these 70 weeks are determined, they're cut out, they're the pattern. Upon thy people, Daniel was a Jew, and so when he talks about thy people, we're talking about the Jewish people, and upon thy holy city, we're here talking about Jerusalem. That's what this prophecy is going to be about, is the Jews and Jerusalem, and what has been determined for them as a matter of pattern going back to the Babylonian captivity. Now, these 70 weeks are determined, one, group number one, to finish the transgression, that's number item number one, and to make an end of sins, item number two, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, item number three in the first group. And the first group relates to the crucifixion and atonement of Jesus Christ. And that you hear me say that, and all of a sudden, oh yeah, that, that's obvious. Because with the crucifixion, with the atonement of Jesus Christ, we have him, the Savior, 
finishing the transgression, he's making an end of sins, and he's making reconciliation for iniquity. So now it becomes more obvious. Once you, once you hear it, uh, you have no really reason to doubt that that's what the prophecy pertains to. Then we come to group number two, which says, again, if I back up just a moment and say the 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. 70 weeks in this context means 490 years are determined upon thy people. And then group number two, to bring in everlasting righteousness, item number one. Then item number two is to seal up the vision and prophecy. Then item number three, to anoint the most holy. You can see where this now relates not to what's happening at the time of the first coming, but to the time of the second coming. And that's where we get to at the end of the 490 years is the second coming where Christ, through his appearance, will bring in everlasting righteousness. In other words, the millennium. It will seal up the vision and the prophecy. Everything that has been prophesied about the coming of Christ and the millennial period of peace and uh, and righteousness and to anoint the most holy which is of course when Christ comes as the Messiah who is also king of kings and anointing often correlates with this concept of coronation which will occur in connection with the second coming of Jesus Christ so that again is kind of a recap of Daniel 9 verse 24 that is the start of the 70 weeks prophecy now what I want to do for a few minutes is, is break those things down just a little bit uh, more and so I'm going to talk about the statements the three statements in group number one which describes Christ's first advent and his atonement and the fact that he was crucified first to finish the transgression. This means that essentially he's going to shut up or remove from God's sight uh, this idea of transgression by the people, the Jews, and more viewed more largely all people who are willing and able to take advantage of the atonement of Jesus Christ will have their transgressions shut up they will be removed from God's sight. He will cover them and he will seal them. And so when we talk about the power of the atonement, that's what it takes to finish the transgression. The transgression. And so in Hebrew, if you kind of look at some of these words, uh, when we're talking about what the atonement means in Hebrew, that comes from the word kafar, which means to cover and to forgive. In Arabic or in the Aramaic, it would be kafat, which relates to uh, a close embrace. So these roots obviously have the same root or etymology associated with them, but in the Hebrew, the, you get this idea that it is to cover and to forgive, but yet the Aramaic and Arabic have taken that same root word and turned it into the a meaning of a close embrace. And now consider this that we find in Second Nephi 1.15, which is a prophecy concerning the atonement, a kafar in Hebrew and a kafat in Aramaic and Arabic and listen to this it says the Lord hath redeemed my soul I have beheld his glory and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love 
And so you see they both have this idea of redemption, which is forgiveness and to cover the sin, to remove the transgression. And in the same verse, it's talking about the fact that when that occurs, we will be encircled about eternally in the arms of Christ's love. Uh, and so we get the Arabic and Aramaic context coming into play. Consider this also in uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 58 verse 42 that says, Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I the Lord remember them no more. That's what it means to finish the transgression or to have them removed from God's sight, to have them covered up, to have them sealed. So that's that's just a little bit of additional background into that uh, first item in group number one to finish the transgression as part of the atonement. Now, the, the 70 weeks prophecy also tells us that the uh, prophecy relates to making an end of sins. And so consider John 1.29, at the time that uh, the Savior was baptized, uh, we have it recorded that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming unto him and he said, quote, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, close quote. And so that's consistent with what Daniel has already told us in his prophecy about the fact that the atonement would make an end of sins. And so we come to the fundamental question of how is it possible that the atonement can even make an end of sin? And so the way that that occurs, of course, is that sins end by the substitutionary or vicarious sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Repentant people are no longer sinful, nor are they full of sin, because Christ takes upon himself our sins so that our evil and our wickedness is imputed to him. He, 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 that's why we say he takes upon himself our sins. Literally, he takes them from us, and once he takes, them, takes our sins from us, we no longer have sins. Sin for us has come to an end because Christ has taken them from us and he puts them on himself. And when, and when he takes upon himself our sins or our evil that is imputed to him, then his purity and his goodness <clears throat> is then imputed back to us. And so where once we were sin-filled uh, and sinful, we have purity, goodness, and righteousness imputed back, and so now we are without sin. It is the end of sin for us. And as you think about this, um, the concept is that he, he has us covered. Um, and I was thinking, you know, isn't that, wouldn't that make a great t-shirt <laughs> that says, I got you covered. <laughs> and, and that's the way the, the atonement works. He's, he has our sins covered, and, uh, and we are without sin. And for us, sin, the end of sin has come. Now, some in this context interpret this idea uh, of making an end of sins. They interpret that as being an end of sin offerings or a fulfillment of the law of Moses. And we're talking now about Christ's great and last sacrifice, 
by which he brought an end to the shedding of blood. And so um, some people correctly identify the, uh, the time frame of the prophecy as being connected to the atonement of Jesus Christ. But they interpret this idea of there being an end of sin to being this end of sin offerings um, made according to the, uh, the law of Moses. I'm not saying that they're completely unrelated or that they're completely wrong. Uh, there is certainly that connection, but I think more clearly and plainly, it is that the uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ brought about an end of sins through the imputation of sin to him and the imputation back to us of his goodness and purity, as I've already described. Now, the third item in group number one is that the time is determined to make a reconciliation for iniquity. And so this, this idea of reconciliation, again, brings with it the concept of covering our sins, uh, get your t-shirts, um, to atone, to pardon, to forgive. It's associated with the word expiation. Um, all of these uh, words that describe this concept of providing cover uh, for our sins so that they can no longer be seen is uh, comes from the the same word that is used to describe the pitch that was applied to the ark in the time of Noah. So you'll remember that he made the ark out of this gopher wood and uh, when it came time to seal it up so that it actually wouldn't have a lot of leaks and have the need for some a lot of bilge pumps. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he, he, he then took the pitch uh, from the trees, a sap of some kind, and he covered the ark. And uh, that's the same word that is used to describe this reconciliation where there is a covering of our sins. It's like we get covered in this uh, pitch like on the ark. And there's some, some great symbolism in that, uh, that the, the ark in being covered was uh, the only people that survived and the animals in the ark. They're all covered. And it's like there's this reconciliation that has been made for them. And therefore, uh, because this covering existed for them, it was what saved them in the ark and uh, no need for even bilge pumps. <laughs> it was that good. Um, so at any rate, getting back to our, our story, what we know is, and I've described to you already, is the fact that by before uh, Daniel receives the 70 weeks prophecy, he already knows that the Jews have forsaken the Lord and that they deserve to be punished in captivity. But now he sees that uh, through the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus Christ, uh, these people, even those that uh, were full of transgression, full of sins, and had need uh, for reconciliation for their iniquities, they could be covered in this pitch that uh, would make sure that they are spared. And so we have here in this context this temporal message of the Jews returning back to Jehovah by leaving Babylon and uh, going back to rebuild the temple and to their worship of Jehovah. And we, we use that symbolism today in the Doctrine and Covenants and in scriptures it talks about uh, the people are commanded to 
leave Babylon, to come out of Babylon so that we don't receive of her sins and her transgressions, and nor do we receive her punishments if we will simply come out of Babylon and have our sins and our transgressions reconciled, um, as described here in the 70 weeks prophecy. And when those things occur, then of course we have the promise that the Lord doesn't remember our sins anymore as they are forgiven, and so we're covered. And there is no sin, there is no transgression, and we have a reconciliation for iniquity. So that's everything about those three items in group number one that go into this prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, let me mention this, and I might mention it again. The prophecy is not about the birth of Jesus Christ. The prophecy is about the timing of his crucifixion and his atonement. So when we get down here to talking about time periods, keep that in mind. The time periods don't relate to his birth. They relate to his death. Uh, and just keep that in mind. Okay, so now I want to move on and focus for just a minute on the three statements that Daniel makes in group two to describe Christ's second coming. And so these are promises and, and hopes of a clean people that are without transgressions and sins and iniquity. And so uh, the atonement, of course, has universal application. It's not like if you accept the Savior at the time the crucifixion occurred, you get the blessings of having, you know, the, the end of transgressions, etc. It is a promise and a hope of a clean people throughout all millennia, throughout all generations, including right up to and including the second coming, the millennium, and beyond. And so what we have here in, as part of these statements in this second group is the idea that those who have become clean through the items in the first group, that is, they're without transgression, sins, and iniquity, then they have the hopes that are promised in the second group that come to fruition at the time of Christ's second coming. So this the, the determination is made that, as item number one relates, that it will bring in everlasting righteousness. And we're here talking essentially about the, uh, the, the millennial kingdom. And uh, so you have this uh, great joy and everything is happy. It's like we're, we're listening to uh, this happy song. And remember how you reminisce and it, you, it takes you back to your childhood and happy memories and, and everything else like that would have been. And all of a sudden, as we talk about this concept of bringing everlasting righteousness, I have to bring some reality to this. And it's like you take an old phonograph and you unplug it and all of a sudden your happy music grinds to uh, stop. <laughs> that was my interpretation of uh, unplugging an old phonograph. But you have to understand that before we ever get to this period of everlasting righteousness, the millennial kingdom is going to be preceded by wickedness, not righteousness. So when the, the period is determined 
to bring in everlasting righteousness. What brings in that everlasting righteousness will be preceded by some of the worst and most horrible wickedness that will ever exist upon the earth. It will be preceded by this list, this horrible list of horribles uh, that we call Armageddon, and uh, it goes by other names, but uh, that's what is going to bring in everlasting righteousness. So you need not think that in group number two, we're just going to be footloose and fancy free marching into the millennial kingdom of righteousness and uh, all is going to be good and happy because uh, it's going to be preceded by some some pretty nasty stuff that we're, we're not going to get into it too much today. I might touch on it a little bit more, but uh, really that's what you need to understand when it talks about bringing in everlasting righteousness the bringing in is not going to be a pretty sight all right and so the second item is that that relates to these time periods being determined in this second group that there will be the sealing up of the vision and prophecy by complete fulfillment that is by the second coming at the time of Jesus Christ and not at the time of the first coming. And so just to give you this concept, when it talks about sealing up the vision and the prophecy as being connected to the second coming, we have religions today, including specifically the, the Catholic religion and many, if not all, Protestant religions that claim that there's no more revelation after the Bible canon, that the, the canon kind of closed revelation and we don't have need of continuing revelation. Well, you're, they're not reading the prophecy of Daniel very well or very closely because he says specifically that visions and the prophecies will not be sealed up until the time of the second coming not the first coming. So you have both those aspects. One is that Daniel is telling us that at the time of the second coming, there will be a fulfillment of all prophecy in connection with the second coming. And in, until then, there will continue to be vision. There will continue to be prophecy because they will not be completed or sealed up or ended until the time of the second coming. And we know that uh, the prophecies concerning the second coming and the millennium are that this will be a time when all the truths of the creation and everything about the earth will be known and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord during the period of the millennium. And so that's the period of time when there will be fulfillment and a completion of the revelation of all things concerning this earth, including its creation. So that's item number two. Then we come to the last item in group number threes that talks about the fact that the, uh, the most holy would be anointed or the anointing of the most holy. This has many different interpretations uh, as to what is meant by this. A lot of people, again, still consider it to be associated with or connected to the second coming, but they're not exactly sure what it is that we're talking about. And so some people will say that uh, this relates to the city of Jerusalem being blessed by the presence of Jesus Christ. Some people think that this relates to uh, the consecration of the Christian church uh, that will then exist. Um, others believe that it relates to the Holy of Holies in the temple 
that will be reconstructed. And this is certainly an important part of this particular prophecy, but not the only part of it. Uh, because uh, one aspect of the revelation and this part of the prophecy is relates to the anointing of Jesus Christ as King of Kings. And so here we have the anointing of the Most Holy would be Jesus Christ himself. Now we know that that's going to occur at the great gathering at Adam on Diamond when Christ will return to the earth, he will receive from all the key holders on earth all the keys that pertain to this earth because they return those keys to him because he is then going to be anointed king of king and it will be the time when he is then prepared to begin his personal reign on the earth and so um, that's one important aspect of what this is talking about and we're going to get into this uh, gathering at Adam on Diamond in a little bit more detail in a few minutes so coming back to the the other aspect of this and that is the anointing of the uh, most holy the the most holy as it relates to the temple in Jerusalem of course would be the holy of holies now this raises an important issue because there has not been a temple in Jerusalem a Jewish temple in Jerusalem since 70 AD and here we are talking about the second coming and the fact that there would be an anointing of the most holy meaning the holy of holies a Jewish temple in Jerusalem that essentially implies if not requires that in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled there has to be a reconstruction of what would be a third Jewish temple and there, if you go on uh, the internet and you Google Jewish Third Temple, you're going to find a lot of information about it because the Jews are uh, very intent on building this Third Temple, which according to the prophecy of Daniel must in fact happen at the time of, or at least sometime shortly before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because how else can you anoint the Holy of Holies if you don't have it constructed, all right? And so it just kind of begs that kind of question. And now within the Latter-day Saint culture and our beliefs, there's a lot of different viewpoints on what this temple is. When we talk about the third temple, that which will be built before the second coming, there are some that think that this is going to be an LDS temple and it's simply not the case. Um, it's going to be a Jewish temple and they're going to do things according to the old ways of the law of Moses and their practices. But that's essentially what we're talking about here. And it, it should not come as a surprise to us in the Latter-day Saint community because in 1845, the 12 apostles issued a proclamation to the kings of the world. And I just want to quote for you what that proclamation states. It says, quote, we further testify that the Jews among all nations are hereby commanded in the name of the Messiah to prepare to return to Jerusalem in Palestine and to rebuild that city and temple unto the Lord. Close quote. 
So there you have it, a specific declaration by the 12 apostles in our church telling not members of our church to go and build a temple in Jerusalem, but telling the Jews to gather, to build the city, and to build a temple unto the Lord. And that's entirely consistent with the prophecy that is given here in Daniel, where the most holy, that is holy of holies, is to be anointed in connection with the second coming of Jesus Christ. So let there be no mistake, this temple in Jerusalem that we refer to as the third temple needs to be and will be built before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's going to be one of those major signs of the time uh, that has to occur in order for the fulfillment of the prophecy. And I'm going to talk a little bit about John's references to this third temple in the book of Revelation. But be assured, John talks about this temple. Um, and that's why we have to study what Daniel says in connection with what John says so that we can figure out the timing of when these events are supposed to occur. So that's a little bit about those three separate items in group one and group two. And so now we can continue on with our discussion about the 70 weeks prophecy. And you might be asking yourself, um, how can we be so certain that the 70 weeks that John refers or that Daniel refers to in this prophecy are actually weeks of years totaling 490 years where do where do you get that from and the place that we get it from is from the nature of the uh, the hebrew word of seven it comes it's connected to sabbatical years and so when we think of the sabbath being on the for the jews on the seventh day that comes from the same root word in other words seven and Sabbath are from the same root word, and it, that's the word is Shabua, and it literally means sevens, the word seven plural, that is, has an S on the end, and it's used to describe weeks and also Sabbath of years. And so when we're talking here uh, in Daniel's prophecy that takes us out to the second coming, uh, you can't assume, well, 70 weeks is going to take care of that because Daniel was making this prophecy in 536 B.C. So it, it doesn't make any sense to even begin with the assumption that he's talking about normal weeks here. And so you have to have this uh, idea in mind for this rather global type of prophecy that the we have to be reaching beyond the normal meaning of the word 70 weeks. And so essentially we're talking about the full measure of time or 70 heptads or 70 groups of seven years. That is seven times 70 equals 490 years that will then bring us to the end of time, which Daniel also describes in the prophecy where he talks about the consummation of all things. That's that's the second coming, and we'll, we'll talk about that. So the more you get to know it, the more obvious it becomes that the correct interpretation of the 70 weeks are sabbatical years, meaning weeks of years. 
Okay, so that kind of takes us through verse number 24 in Daniel chapter 9. And now I'm going to read to you again and kind of interlineate for you as we go along some of the meanings associated with the, uh, the words used in this verse. And so uh, keep in mind that uh, we're now getting ready to start the math associated with these uh, prophecies. We identified the events that are to occur, the first coming. We've identified events associated with the second coming and the meanings of, of those terms. And now, now we're going to get down to the math. And so it says in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Now, so what I want to do now, for those of you who have the benefit of uh, watching this on YouTube, or if you don't and you want to eventually see what uh, what all this means and how this math works, we're putting up a, uh, a graphic that actually shows the uh, the time periods that are being expressed here in this particular verse 25. And so you'll see in the graphic, you have the, uh, the, the it's broken down into three periods. So you have one period of seven weeks. And so since seven weeks are really, each week is seven years, when it talks about seven weeks, we're talking about 49 years. So that's period number one. Just to be sure, and for those of you who aren't looking at the graphic, the vision covers 490 years, and then it's broken down into three separate time periods. Period number one is seven weeks or 49 years, and that's according to the verse I just read, is when the walls of Jerusalem would be rebuilt and the street shall be built again, even in troublous times, all right? That's what happens in the first 49 years or seven weeks of this prophecy. Then we come to period number two, and that period is the three score and two weeks, which is equal to 62 weeks or 434 years. And just to give you a little uh, scenes to coming attractions, this 434 years corresponds with the intertestamental period from about the time of Malachi until the uh, ministry of Jesus Christ. And so um, you add that period, period number two of 62 weeks, with the per first period of seven weeks, and you get a total of 69 weeks or 483 years that end with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So that is where we're now starting to get these specific time frames. And we're going to talk about that some more in detail about how these time periods work out um, and how closely they compare to what Daniel had predicted. Now, that gets us to the end of 69 weeks, which corresponds with the crucifixion and atonement of Jesus Christ. But there's a long period of time between 
the first coming of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and that second period, uh, that second group that I described for you, which is the last period of one week of seven years, all right? And so what we have, even though the... Uh, the prophecy doesn't specifically say, oh, by the way, after we get through the first 69 weeks, we're going to have this gap of time. It doesn't say that, but what it does say in the next verse that I'm going to read in a minute, it describes three things that are going to happen in the period of the what I call the gap. And it's what other commentators call it as well, because you have this gap of time between the 69th week and the 70th week, and that gap will last about 2,000 years. Now, because the Lord is kind of uh, an orderly person, uh, he likes numbers, he likes round numbers, it would not surprise me if the period of the gap is literally 2,000 years. And we're going to talk about what that could potentially mean, just in kind of hypothetical terms, as it relates to the timing of the second coming of Jesus Christ. But we're just going to say for now that the gap is roughly 2,000 years between the 69th and 70th weeks. In other words, 2,000 years from the time that Christ is crucified until the start of the last week, the 70th week, which consists of seven years. And if you're looking on the chart, you already can see, oh, that's the period of Armageddon. Well, where did we get that? Hold on to your hats because we'll get there, okay? But that's what that means, which then brings us to 70 weeks total or 490 years, which finally ends that last week of seven years will end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. So that's the, uh, that's the breakdown of the math in Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. And as I said before, we get lots of prophecies about certain events are going to happen. <clears throat> the, the ministry of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, his atonement, all of these things are prophesied in rather great detail by a number of Old Testament prophets. But Daniel's the only one, and this prophecy is the only one that actually sets forth the dates on when it is supposed to occur. And so after you, uh, uh, now I'm going to read the, uh, the 26th verse again from chapter 9. To, for, and this is again kind of for the benefit of those who uh, are listening by audio so that you can kind of keep up this complex stuff if you don't have it sitting right in front of you. But that 26th verse says, And after threescore and two weeks, we're talking here now, what would be the second period, this 62 weeks or 434 years, he says, after the three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. So that's where Daniel is saying 483 years, because you have to add the second period of 62 weeks plus the first period of seven weeks. That gives you a total of 49 years plus 434 years, total of 483 years. And so what Daniel is saying, from the time the prophecy begins, it will be 483 years until the Savior's crucifixion. And then it says, so we've, we've identified that period, and then that same verse says, quote, And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city, 
and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So the first part of this verse where it talks about the three score and two weeks talks about the time when the crucifixion would occur. And then it's basically telling you after that happens, after the 69th week, he's then identifying three things that are going to happen, which must happen before the second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, these three items are things that will occur during the 2000 year gap, roughly that I have mentioned to you before and have identified. And so that's what you, you have to understand. So we're going to get to a little bit further description of each of those in a moment. But before we do so, let me talk about what it means when it says the Messiah shall be cut off, which is stated in uh, verse 26, as I've described. The word cut off, uh, if you look at the, the meaning of the word in the context in which it is used here, it's like a garment or a tree branch that has been cut off. Uh, it means to destroy uh, by violent death. And so I'm sure you didn't require any convincing that when it says the Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself, that's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his atonement. He didn't do that. He wasn't cut off for himself. He had no need for a savior to redeem him from sin. Um, and he had power of life in himself. And so when he was cut off by violent means, it was not for himself. It was the ultimate uh, sacrifice that was made in the service of God's children um, and a blessing that would redeem them because he had no redemption required for himself. And that's why Daniel prophesies that he was cut off by violent means but not for himself. And so that all points towards the uh, crucifixion. Now, the other topics I'm going to cover really quickly because uh, essentially after the Savior was crucified, we know as a matter of history that what the world embarked on at that point was the period of the great apostasy. And, uh, and, and it continued on for, for many, many years. But keep in mind that this prophecy pertains specifically to the Jews and to Jerusalem. And so we can't think just kind of in global terms about the great apostasy as it relates to this worldwide event. It does, but the, the Jews and the Jewish apostasy and what happened to Jerusalem is a microcosm within that larger picture. And so when it's talking here about the people of the prince that shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, that's clearly talking about Prince Titus, the Roman general who eventually became the emperor of Rome, entering into Judea uh, shortly before 70 AD and destroying the city and the sanctuary or the temple. That's a clear description, but that happens after the 69th year. That's why you can't have a continual period between the 69th and 70th years because you have to have a gap in which these things can happen, including the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by Titus, the Roman general. And then he says uh, in that same verse, verse, I'm still in verse 26, where it talks about, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. 
The flood that Daniel is referring to here in this particular verse is a flood of wickedness that shall overcome the world universally. Not a flood of water, but a flood of wickedness and apostasy when the gospel of Jesus Christ, would be, it's like it would be drowned uh, in all this wickedness so that uh, it could no longer be found. And so that's Daniel's imagery that he uses rather consistently to describe a flood. And John uh, also describes the, the great apostasy, but he uses different types of imagery that we're going to talk about that in more detail when I get to a discussion uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 13, which is a chapter that talks about the period that Daniel is here talking about in this verse when there was a flood of wickedness, that is, the great apostasy. And then the, the last part of this verse talks about the fact that unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, keeping in mind that this verse pertains to the, the Jews and the city of Jerusalem, this is a prophecy that is essentially saying that from the time that Titus, the prince, destroys the city and the sanctuary, and they're overcome with this flood of apostasy, this flood that is also an attack upon the Jewish people and Jerusalem. And then it goes on right on to include and say, unto the end, the end that we're talking about, is the second coming, okay, that we've already established, unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. So what Daniel is here predicting is that from the time that Titus destroys the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, and their temple, and their sanctuary, um, they were going to be subject to desolations until the very end, until the second coming. And in other places, in Joseph Smith Matthew, for example, where it talks about Titus coming in and destroying the temple, it says specifically, these are the beginning of sorrows. All right. And so is as bad as it was what happened to the Jewish people and to Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD, the ultimate end of that by the according to the prophecies of both Daniel and the Savior that's just the beginning of sorrows and the desolations upon this people the Jews would continue until the end of the war that's what has been determined that's the pattern that's the fabric that gets cut out and so if you stop and think about the history of the Jews we have the benefit of now seeing the fulfillment of this prophecy in many respects and frankly we're seeing it today uh, what's going on in the Middle East and uh, a lot of the anti-semitism that is occurring in the world today uh, you're seeing a fulfillment of prophecy and I, I hate to say that it's, just, it's very sad and it's unfortunate it's, the whole war is is unfortunate but the reality of it is we are seeing the fulfillment of prophecy before our very eyes as predicted by both the Savior and by Daniel. So eventually we're going to get into a discussion of that in more detail, uh, but I, I just wanted to lay that out. That's what happens in the gap, all right, are those three items. And um, so now let me go back and we're going to circle back a little bit and talk about these individual periods of time 
that are uh, described in verse 25 of chapter 9. So the first period is seven weeks of seven years totaling 49 years. And what the prophecy predicts is that during those 49 years, we were going to have the street, meaning a, the street in Jerusalem, being built again and the wall, meaning the wall around Jerusalem, even in troublous times. So now let me give you a, a little bit of an elaboration on what that means. Having kind of walked through it a little bit already, you're beginning to get the picture of uh, what Daniel is talking about. But now we need to talk about this concept of when does this start? What, what's the calculation and the starting point for the calculation? Because G Daniel gives us to understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem shall be the start of this first seven-week period totaling 49 years. And I've already told you the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem um, was not the command or the edict that was issued by Cyrus to build the temple. This is different. This commandment is to rebuild the streets, to be, rebuild the wall, to fortify the city of Jerusalem in a time that is described by Daniel as troublous times. So they're two different edicts. And so the timing that we're talking about here is an edict that was issued by King Artaxerxes of Persia on, and we even know the exact date, March 5th, after reconciling the Gregorian and Julian calendars, but the exact time period when King Artaxerxes of Persia issued a decree was March 5, 444 BC. So that's well after the edict that had been issued by Cyrus in 536 BC. So that's the time period when the 70 weeks prophecy begins, roughly 444 BC. And the way this came about is that the prophet Nehemiah was the cup bearer for King Artaxerxes in Persia. And uh, this was the period after the Jews had been back in Jerusalem. They'd been, uh, they had uh, attempted to rebuild the temple. Um, and, you know, they had a lot of struggles and a lot of challenges. And uh, uh, the Samaritans were always attacking them. The, the city always seemed to be under attack. And so Nehemiah was feeling a little bit melancholy about these circumstances. And when Artaxerxes noticed that his cupbearer was feeling a little low, uh, he said, well, what's the problem? And so Nehemiah explained to him what was going on, and this is what caused Artaxerxes to issue the decree that the Jews would be allowed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to fortify it. And that's the point in time when Nehemiah was made the governor in Jerusalem, and his task was to rebuild the city. And it's, uh, it's kind of interesting because uh, <laughs> the, the Jews had attempted on some occasions prior to this to rebuild the walls because they were continuing to have problems with the Samaritans. And let me give you a quickie background on the Samaritans. You'll recall 
when the Jews were taken captive into Babylon starting in 606 BC and kind of ending in 587 BC when all of Jerusalem was destroyed, the Jews were taken captive, but not all of them. Some of them were kind of hanging out in the outlying areas and uh, they eventually began to kind of intermarry with some of the uh, heathen nations and they became known as the Samaritans. And they were, the Jews did not consider them worthy because they had intermixed with the heathen nations of uh, Palestine. And so when the Jews come back, they wouldn't have anything to do with them. And that's this, this great and long history of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. Because when the Jews came back, they had in hand the decree of Cyrus that, hey, we get to rebuild the temple and we get to reestablish the true worship of Jehovah. And the Samaritans said, great, how can we help? <laughs> and the Jews basically told them, well, you're not helping. You're a, you're a bunch of uh, heathens. Uh, you're, you're, you're nothing. You, you don't get the help. And so this began the hatred and the warfare. And so uh, the, uh, the Samaritans did everything possible to prevent the Jews from rebuilding the temple because uh, they were rebuffed and weren't allowed to uh, continue. Now, the temple was eventually rebuilt by 515 BC, but this hatred continued on. And so the decree comes down 30 years later that the walls can be rebuilt. But in the meantime, the Jews had already tried to do this because the Samaritans were continually attacking them. And uh, the Samaritans actually went back to the Persian overlords, the kings, Artaxerxes, and said, hey, these Jews have gone beyond the limits of the decree issued by uh, Cyrus which told them they could be of the temple, but they're out here refortifying the city. They're rebuilding the walls and everything like that. And so Artaxerxes kind of put a hold on them. He said, hey, hold it, hold it, hold it. You don't have the authority of the Persian kingdom to rebuild the walls of the city. Now, a decree actually directing and giving permission for the Jews to do so is highly irregular. It's, it's virtually unheard of because what, what kingdom and, uh, you know, dynasty in their right mind gives the Jews this independent right to fortify their cities, which can be fortifications that could be used against the Persian Empire, not just against the Samaritans. So, it was highly unusual uh, that this should occur, but after the Samaritans went and complained, eventually uh, Artaxerxes, seeing the melancholy nature of Nehemiah, issues the decree that the walls of Jerusalem can be rebuilt. Now, this is a big difference between the decree of Cyrus, as I've pointed out in the history, but there's a big difference between saying to the Jews, you can go back and rebuild your temple, practice your religion, and a decree that says, you can fortify your city and defend yourselves almost like they were an autonomous or independent nation within the Persian Empire. But, but that's essentially what happens. And that decree was so significant that uh, that became the decree that was the starting point for Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy in 444 BC. And for the first week of seven years, for the first seven weeks of seven years, totaling 49 years, that's what the Jews did. They rebuilt and refortified the walls of the uh, city of Jerusalem. Now, 
Taking that as our starting point, we can go ahead now and start to look at some of the calculations of uh, going from 444 BC when the decree was issued, you've got the first uh, seven years of 49 years. And then keep in mind, we had that second period that was identified as 62 weeks of 434 years. You add those two together to get 483 years. And guess what? 444 BC, again, after you take into consideration the differences of the Gregorian and Jewish calendars, which is ultimately a difference of no more than about nine years. But you add those dates together and what you come up with is roughly 34 AD, uh, which coincides almost exactly, we don't know the exact date, but almost exactly with the uh, crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's incredibly accurate. And if you stop and think about the poor record-keeping practices and the confusion over the, the changes as they go from w being uh, controlled by one empire that has its periods of dating and how it does things to another one. Because essentially, in the, during these periods of these prophecies, we, we've gone from the Babylonian com uh, Empire which was uh, destroyed in 536 BC to the Persian Empire, to the Greek Empire, and to the Roman Empire. So you're passing through all of these empires, all with their own systems of datings and, and, and things that they use as the basis for reckoning time and coronations of kings from this such and such a time. I mean, it's amazing that Daniel could predict with such accuracy that from that decree by Artaxerxes in 440 BC, it would be 483 years until the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but he nailed it. <laughs> now, what does that mean for us? Well, what it means to me is I can rely on this thing because now we know, you know, you have really smart people studying these various systems of calendaring um, that have figured out that he, he got it right. And another really pretty significant aspect about Daniel's prophecy is he made the prophecy in roughly 536 BC, which is almost 100 years before Artaxerxes even issued his decree. <laughs> so, at any rate, you know, this is why people like George Reynolds, Elder George Reynolds, and others say this is one of the most incredible prophecies of the Old Testament because there's no other prophecy that puts forth the timeline with the accuracy. Well, they don't put forth the timeline at all, let alone their accuracy or non-accuracy. There just aren't any other prophecies. But Daniel's one prophecy that sets forth from the going forth of the commandment, that is the decree of Artaxerxes, to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah, Messiah meaning, of course, the anointed one, shall be seven weeks. That's the period of 49 years that we just talked about that it took to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, plus three score and two weeks, that's 69 weeks or 483 years total, to rebuild the street and that's kind of what you have to have in mind when we're talking about rebuilding the street that to to make these have these wide open areas where you'd have markets and other things like that um, to be built again that is to the prior glory of jerusalem and the wall which would include like trenches and to essentially make the uh, the city defensible 
even in troublous times, which I've described previously as the, the difficulties that were created by the uh, Samaritans. And so it's kind of like the, the old saying goes out when, when they were building the, uh, the walls in Jerusalem in troublous times, um, you essentially had workers that had a weapon in one hand and uh, a tool in the other hand. So that's, that's what happens during the first seven weeks of seven years or 49 years. So I'm going to briefly touch on the second period. There's not too much that we have to talk about during that second period because as I mentioned, uh, this period of 434 years coincides with the intertestamental period of the Bible. That is from Malachi, roughly 490 BC, to Matthew in the New Testament or 30 AD. And during that period of time, we didn't have any prophets among the Jews. There was no city of Jerusalem to speak of because this was a period of great apostasy when uh, Jerusalem hadn't gone back to its uh, holy status as uh, God's holy city. And uh, you just have it passing from one empire to another empire. Um, as I mentioned before, the, the Persians, the Greeks, um, and ultimately the Romans. And so that's kind of the, the period of the, uh, the 434 years. Now, then we come after this, after this crucifixion of the Savior, which is the end of the 69th week. Um, we then have the gap, which I've mentioned before in the fact that the Messiah Prince shall be cut off. Now, this is where a lot of people have some difficulties because uh, in their interpretation because they don't recognize the existence of a gap between the 69th and 70th week and so uh, a millenarians or people who don't believe that there will be this period of uh, of a millennium they are among those who interpret this prophecy and say there's no gap between the 69th and 70th years and essentially one goes to the other without interruption and this group essentially takes the position that the 70 weeks prophecy ended with the Roman abomination and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD but the problem is they can't reconcile the time periods with that end date in other words if 70 AD was the period in which the uh, prophecy ends you end up with the first at the time of the first coming of the savior his crucifixion in 34 a.d and if you only have one week of seven years left after 34 a.d that leaves you at 41 a.d not 70 a.d so they just can't reconcile the times. And so that's why essentially the prophecy doesn't work unless you recognize that between the 69th week and the 70th week, there is this gap of time. And I've already explained some of the, the three events that will occur uh, during this period of time and uh, and what is to happen so we, we don't need to cover that further so what we'll do now is go on to verse 26 and I'm going to read that verse again for you and kind of uh, add some uh, information about them so that again it will become clear 
uh, what happens. And, and this again pertains to the gap. And after three score and two weeks, that is the 69th year, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And then we now begin the description of the three items in the post 69th week, which is that Titus would come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end would be with a flood of apostasy and desolations are determined to run against the Jews until essentially the second coming. Now, the, the question might be asked, why is it that it was prophesied and ultimately the was fulfilled that there were so many desolations and have been and continue to be desolations upon the Jews? Um, and the, the, the short answer is because the, the Jews invited it with their crucifixion of the Savior. And um, you'll see this, for example, in uh, Matthew 27, 25, as Jesus is standing before Pilate uh, offering to release Jesus because he found him guilty of no crime. And the, uh, the Jews were, uh, were chanting for the crucifixion of the Savior and the release of Barabbas. And they proclaimed, His blood be on us and on our children. And so uh, this is something that they kind of invited. But it's not just that they invited this upon themselves, but because of their own wickedness and their own unwillingness to accept the Savior uh, in his ministry and in his position as the Messiah. It's the same thing that happened to them back at the time of Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian captivity. Why were they taken captive into Babylon? Why did they suffer those desolations at that time? And it was because ultimately, as Daniel describes in his ninth chapter, because they invited it upon themselves because of their refusal as a covenant people. So they're not just, they're, they're unique. They are, they are special. They are, they are the Lord's covenant people. Uh, if you're a watcher of the chosen, <laughs> they're the chosen. And so where much is given, much is required. And he who sins against the greater light receiveth the greater condemnation. That, those are the kinds of things that we're talking about. But after Jesus basically stood before Pilate among the chants of the Jews claiming his blood be on us and upon our children, then you'll remember that as he was being taken and carrying his own cross to Calgary, to Calvary, um, and, go, and where he would die, um, he was en route, and some of the women along the route uh, were weeping. Um, and Jesus noticed them, that they were weeping for the fact that he was about to be crucified. And Luke 23, 28 records this. It says, But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And he knew what was coming. He talked about it the night before when he was on the Mount of Olives with his disciples when they asked him when would be the time of his second coming. And Jesus described for them the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD um, and the fact that the temple would be destroyed such that there would not be one stone left standing on another. Um, and you know, I remember years ago, I was teaching a priesthood lesson um, and talking about this same subject matter and all of the uh, 
the difficulties and the horrendous things that have befallen the Jews uh, over the history and, and talking about the fact that it was something that uh, came as a consequence of uh, crucifying the Savior and refusing to accept him and uh, living their lives in a way that was inconsistent with the teachings of Jehovah uh, after having been given so many blessings and so many opportunities to receive them. I mean, he didn't come to any other people. Uh, he didn't go to the Gentiles. He wouldn't even go to the Samaritans openly and others who even had some of the blood of Abraham. It was to the Jews and to the Jews only. He went, and in consequence of their rebellion, their rejection, and apostasy from his teachings, they, they basically invited these things upon themselves. And so as we had that discussion in a priesthood meeting, um, you know, there was a visitor in the priesthood that came up to me afterwards, and he happened to be Jewish. Uh, and he said, I get so frustrated with you Mormons. You're always running down the Jewish people for killing the Savior. <laughs> and, you know, I, I didn't know what to, to say. I, I, I'm not sure how we can adequately describe how so much uh, can happen to a people that should be so blessed uh, because of uh, the things that have been done in, in history. And, uh, you know, I, I can't reverse prophecy. I can't say that these things and these sayings don't exist in prophecy, even while at the same time recognizing that I am their cousin, I'm an Israelite, and uh, we have a kinship with them. We are all of the uh, seed of Abraham, so we don't speak of these persecutions and desolations in the sense of saying, you deserve everything you get, which is a mantra that we hear today. That's, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about these history. We're talking about it and we speak of these persecutions and these desolations with not with empathy and not with judgment not with hatred not with accusations but because in a certain extent we feel your pain right i mean we as latter day saints have been suffering with our own kinds of persecutions in the early history of the church and we're going to suffer them again uh, and we'll talk about that because there are prophecies that our persecutions haven't ended. We're, we're living in a blessed time and it's made us a little bit soft, I think, in some ways because sometimes I think we don't appreciate what we have and we're tending to be inviting of persecutions and trials to come upon us because I think we sometimes take our chosen uh, position for, uh, for advantage too and uh, don't recognize it for uh, what it is. And uh, so when I speak uh, of the Jewish people, I speak of someone who is a kinsman. I'm, I'm their kin and uh, I, I remember back in uh, when i went to israel with my family in uh, in 2017 we we spent about 10 days over in israel and we were staying one night or two nights in the uh, city of Cybe of tiberias that's uh, just on the uh, western side of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And one evening they were having kind of a, a, a street market in the uh, town that we were staying in, in the hotel. And, you know, it's an easy walk over to the, uh, the little marketplace. And <clears throat> as we were haggling with uh, some of the vendors, I, I remember my brother was trying to, to, to haggle with this one guy to get a shofar, the, the ram's horn. And I was kind of haggling with him to... Uh, 
buy a, a little golden menorah and uh, so we're, we're haggling with him and uh, all of a sudden he announces that uh, you know he's giving us a very good price and that he was from the tribe of Levi and that I suppose was intended to convey that you can trust me I'm giving you a good price would someone from the tribe of Levi steer you wrong <laughs> So I, when, when, he, when I heard that he was from the tribe of Lehi, Levi, I said, oh, really? And I said, you know, I'm from the tribe of Ephraim, <laughs> which I am. And, uh, and what, what, what happened kind of surprised me because he was taken aback. I mean, physically he was taken, he, he kind of took a step back from me and he just, it's like this, oh. And then he said, Ephraim. So that's what he said. So that, that's obviously the pronunciation for uh, uh, Ephraim that uh, would be in his language, in his Hebrew tongue. And, uh, but when he heard that I was from the tribe of Ephraim, that, that meant something to him, and, uh, and as it should, because uh, Ephraim was uh, recognized as the birthright son of Jacob. And so he held the birthright, and this uh, my kinsman from Levi recognized that, uh, um, and uh, so naturally, I follow. Said, "Well, being from the tribe of Ephraim, am I going to get a better price?" <laughs> and he said, "No, I, you've already you've already got the best deal I can give you." So I ended up with the, the price that was already offered. But it was a kind of a fun little exchange. And you know, we share this kinship, and uh, it, even though it happened in kind of a funny little way on that night uh, in the streets of. Uh, Tiberius, um, it was a nice moment and uh, to share that moment with uh, someone who I truly view as a uh, kinsman. And, and that's the way we should feel toward uh, the Jews uh, today. Uh, but the reality of it is there are so many prophecies that talk about the desolations which are going to occur, not only in the uh, prophecy uh, of Daniel, but for example, to consider Doctrine and Covenants section 45 verses 21 through 25, it says, this generation of Jews shall not pass away until every desolation which I have told you concerning them shall come to pass. And then it makes this promise, but they shall be gathered again, but they shall remain until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And the times of the Gentiles, of course, will be fulfilled uh, at the time of the second coming. But until then, there will be these desolations to the end of Armageddon uh, until the second coming. And we see all these things as a, uh, as a matter of historical fact. Um, consider this verse also, Second uh, Nephi 25:16. It says, And after they have been scattered... And the Lord God hath scourged them by other nations for the space of many generations, yea, even down from generation to generation, until they shall be persuaded to believe in Christ, the Son of God, and the Atonement. And so a lot of these desolations are things that are trying, the Lord is trying to persuade them, as harsh as these measures are, and, and we can't understand as the Lord does how these things can, uh, can occur, but these things are persuaded to ultimately bring them to the point at the time of the second coming, <clears throat> when Jerusalem is under siege, 
and Christ will appear to them on the Mount of Olives, that their hearts will then be softened sufficiently that they will be converted in a day, and they will be a people born again of Christ and receive their blessings again as a chosen people. And uh, until then, we have things like the uh, Inquisitions, and we have the, the Crusades, where Jews were hunted down as the Crusaders were en route to uh, Jerusalem. We have things like state-sponsored riots called pogroms. We have the Holocaust that killed at least 5 million and probably 6 million Jews. And uh, all of these things have happened, and they've been repeatedly trodden down by the Gentiles. Um, and all of these things are the prophecies that are predicted by Daniel as part of this 2,000-year gap and the beginning of sorrows that began in 70 AD until the time of the second coming. So that all of that is uh, a sad history that Daniel had unfolded to him and that we've seen played out in history as part of the 70 weeks prophecy and that the, their trials and their dilemmas will continue until the start of the 70th week. So let's now uh, move along and talk a little bit about this uh, 70th week of seven years. So this is a one-week period of time. And this we find in the, uh, the last verse of the 70 weeks prophecy, which says this, He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. All right, so we've already talked a little bit about uh, these issues about desolations and everything leading up to the second coming, and in this verse you have it specifically talking about until the consummation. And when you hear that word, that's second coming imagery. That's talking about the end. Um, and so uh, just know that that's what we're talking about here as we come into this last week of seven years. It is going to end coincident with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so that's where the, the time frames now start to come into play. So you need to also understand that what is what John or what Daniel is here describing in Revelation in Daniel 9:27 coincides in time with John's prediction of the battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 9 verses 13 through 21. And I'm going to read just a couple of those verses to you. Uh, it says in, in Revelation 9, 13 through 15, this, The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates, and the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. Close quote. Now, the reason I read this verse to you, these verses to you specifically, is 
it's clearly talking about the start of Armageddon, this idea that these large assemblies of armies were going to gather, and at the end of the day, there was going to be a third part of the men that were slain. But important also is the timing of this, because this is what we're talking about with the 70 weeks prophecy. It's all about timing, where Daniel is giving us specific time periods in which things are supposed to occur. So in this verse, in Revelation, <clears throat> it talks about the fact that Armageddon was going to begin when these four angels were loosed who were prepared for an hour, a day, a month, and a year. In other words, at a specific time. It is a set time. Now, that makes perfect sense. In, in fact, it makes it so that you cannot ignore what Daniel has said on the one hand about the last seven years before the coming of Jesus Christ. That's the 70th week of seven years. And those are seven years that conclude with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, if I haven't beat that into you sufficiently, <laughs> then I'm doing something wrong, and you can complain to management that he's just not being clear enough, as I've hopefully made it abundantly clear that we're talking in this prophecy about the events leading up to the second coming. And now we're up to the 70th week, which means the last seven years before the second coming. And now we read in Revelation how the last seven years will begin at the start of the 70th week of seven years, according to the prophecy of Daniel. We're talking about the same things. And the, these time periods are set in stone. They don't move any more than the second coming of the Savior himself would change. Now, if your mind is kind of getting ahead of the story here just a little bit, let me take you there since you're already giving some thought to it. Because essentially, what you have is you have a set date for the second coming of Jesus Christ that can't be changed for any reason. It's fixed. And now we read that the start of Armageddon has the same fixed time period. But it, of course, happens earlier. And according to the reckoning of Daniel, it would have a fixed and unalterable date that begins at a specific hour, day, month, and year, seven years before the coming of Jesus Christ. So it's not really that you need to figure out what the date is for the second coming of Jesus Christ. What you need to figure out is when is Armageddon going to start? And then all you have to do is add seven years, that 70th week of seven years, you add that to it, and guess what? Now you know the date of the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what Daniel's providing for us. Now, if we knew exactly that the gap lasted 2,000 years exactly, I'm just going to run this little hypothetical by you. Uh, it's purely hypothetical. It makes just one simple assumption. I'm assuming that the gap lasts 2,000 years because the Lord loves round numbers and he loves millennial periods. So we're going to assign the gap a period of 2,000 years. Now, whether that's a good assumption or not, I don't know. I'm not prepared to say it could be, but I'm not going to stake my life on it um, <clears throat> or my firstborn child either. Uh, so, Jill, you'll be happy that I'm not betting you off. <laughs> so at any rate, um, so what happens is, the 69th year ends 
when Christ is crucified. We're going to assume that date is 34 AD. Now, if you add 2,000 years of the gap to the year 34 AD, that brings us to 2034. Oh, my goodness. That's only like, well, since the year 2023 is almost up, let's just round it off. That's only 10 years from now. And so if 2,000 years is the time uh, of the start of the 70th week, that guess what that means? It means in 10 years, Armageddon is going to start. <laughs> and seven years after that 10 years, so that takes us to uh, 2034 plus 7, 2041. The, the second coming's in 2041. <laughs> now, that's a hypothetical, okay? Uh, I'm not saying that's when it is. I don't know if the gap is 2,000, but it, it gives you some pause. Now, with the 70 weeks prophecy, you can start to build in some structure and some recognition of things in the sequence in which they are going to uh, occur. Okay, with, now that we've had our fun and games, let's talk about the uh, rest of the uh, content in uh, Daniel 9.27 because during this 70th week of seven years we are told that he, meaning Christ, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That is seven years in the context of the 70 weeks prophecy. So the, the first thing we need to note about this is it's talking about confirmation of the covenant, meaning the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the making uh, of one's calling and election sure. Joseph Smith had this to say in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith at page 321. He said, four destroying angels are holding power over the four quarters of the earth. Now we just talked about those four angels when I was reading to you from Revelation chapter 9. Remember, there were the four angels. They were going to be loosed at an hour, a day, a month, and a year. <clears throat> so this is Joseph Smith talking about them in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. He said, four destroying angels are holding power over the four quarters of the earth until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads, which signifies sealing the blessings upon their heads, meaning the everlasting covenant thereby making their calling and election sure. Now, what Joseph is talking about with this uh, concept of sealing people in their foreheads, that's from Revelation chapter 7, where the 144 servants are sealed in their foreheads. That is 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, totaling 144,000. The people that have the seal of the living God are those who qualify for exaltation. They are members of the church of the firstborn, and they are sealed in the new and everlasting covenant, many of them during the period of the sixth seal in which we are now living. Now, many of these people <clears throat> uh, who are sealed in this manner may not be alive at the time of the second coming, and many have already died. Uh, but Daniel 9.27, when it's talking about 
the Savior confirming the covenant with many for one week. He's basically talking about those who enjoy the blessings of the sealing power, and, and he refers to them as many. He's talking about those who will still be alive during the last seven years that precedes the second coming. And so for those who are still alive of these many saints, there will be many, it says Christ confirms the covenant with those who have made and kept their temple covenants. And the work, the, the, the Greek word, word for confirm in this context means literally, he shall make strong. All right, so when you're talking about Christ confirming the covenant, he will make that covenant strong. In other words, the conditional promises of eternal life that come with the sealing ordinance will be made sure. This is a guarantee that people during this great period of trouble will not be spiritually overcome by the powers of darkness and Satan that will be rampant upon the earth in those seven years preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, that it may also mean, but it's not necessarily guaranteed, that they will also be blessed with physical protection. All right. And so this is this promise is highly significant because uh, th- th- those last seven years, I mean, they're really they're, they're going to be ugly. Um, and I'm, I'll talk about that in just a second as it relates to the last three and a half years of the seven years, because as we go through verse 27 in Daniel 9, we also learn that after the Savior promises that he will confirm the covenant with many for one week, it also says that in the midst of the week, Christ shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Now, what does that mean? First of all, the midst of the week refers to the midpoint of that 70th week of seven years. So we take the seven years, we split it in half so that we have two periods of three and a half years. The two periods together are the total time period for the Battle of Armageddon, but something happens at the midpoint. In other words, three and a half years into that seven-year period of Armageddon, things are going to happen. And specifically what happens, according to the 70 weeks prophecy, is there is going to be a cessation of the sacrifice and the oblations that will be occurring. Now, we come back to this concept that I've already mentioned before, that in order for sacrifices to occur by the Jews, there must be a renewal and rebuilding of the third temple. That must happen in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled. So what we're talking about here is sometime before the midpoint of Armageddon, there is going to be a third temple. There will be sacrifices made by the sons of Levi. um, And at that midpoint, there's going to be something that will happen namely by the Gentiles who will be surrounding Jerusalem and attacking Jerusalem, and they're going to succeed in causing the sacrifice and oblations to cease at the temple in Jerusalem. 
All right. Now, some of the other things that are happening <clears throat> that I can't get into in great detail because we're going to talk about them later. The, the midpoint of Armageddon is when there will be this great gathering of saints at Adam on Diamond, when we will have the anointing of the Savior as King of Kings, and it will prepare him to rule and reign on the earth in person during the period of the millennium. John the Revelator talks about that and describes this gathering at Adam on Diamond in Revelation chapter 10. Now, John then gives us the detail of the gathering at Adam on Diamond, and Daniel gives us the time period in which it's going to occur. He gives us the 70th week, and then he says at the midpoint, these certain things are going to happen. And how do we know that? You don't really see that in the four verses of the prophecy that I have uh, laid out for you. But what Daniel does in subsequent chapters uh, in his book, he describes the coming of Michael the archangel, who is also Adam, coming and standing for the children of thy people. And so Michael is the one who appears at Adam on Diamond, stands for the Jewish people, and following the gathering at Adam on Diamond, uh, at the midpoint of Armageddon, or three and a half years into it, you then have what follows in the last three and a half years are what most people call the Great Tribulation. And, and that's what I call it also. But there are some who consider the last seven years to be a Great Tribulation, and I'm sure that it is. There are going to be tribulations throughout the seven-year period, but in terms of the Great tribulation, quote-unquote, that describes the last three and a half years uh, after the, uh, the midst of the week when there's this uh, cessation of the sacrifice and oblation at the temple in Jerusalem. The, the last three and a half years also corresponds to the protective ministry of the two witnesses in Jerusalem, which John describes in Revelation chapter 11. So all of these things now start to piece together. And, and I haven't brought in everything uh, that helps us to interpret these seven years as being Armageddon. Uh, the, the, at the midpoint, you get Adam on Diamond. A lot of other things come into play in making that determination. I'm really only starting to scratch the surface in terms of the uh, prophecies that uh, have been made. Uh, and as we continue to go through these podcasts, you'll hear me talking about these themes uh, again, and I'll start to fill in uh, some of the, uh, the gaps that might now exist where you just kind of have to take it on faith that this is the proper interpretation of the 70 weeks prophecy and these time periods that John is talking about. But when we, when we talk about this concept of the sacrifices and oblations ceasing and those being the, the, of the type that were included in the Law of Moses, um, you need to understand that, first of all, 
Sacrifice in this context refers to a bloody sacrifice. So we're talking about the sacrifice of lambs and bullocks where they were burned on the altar of sacrifice. These, that's what this means when it's using the word sacrifice in the context of the 70 weeks prophecy. The, the word oblation would relate to non-bloody offerings according to the law of Moses. So we're talking about the, the giving of uh, flour, fruits, grains. We don't hear much about them. The heave offering, perhaps you've heard that term, that would be a non-bloody sacrifice that would include uh, crops of various kinds uh, that they make at the temple. And <clears throat> those types of offerings, of course, were all made up until the time the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, we know, of course, uh, those who <clears throat> are Christian and recognize uh, what the Savior did with his sacrifice, that uh, that was supposed to bring an end to the sacrifice and oblations in the Jewish temple um, because his was the last and great sacrifice. This is what he specifically told to the Nephites when he appeared to them on the American continent as recorded in 3 Nephi 9 verses 18 through 20. He said Jesus specifically told them that there was to be no more shedding of blood and instead the people were supposed to offer a broken heart and a contrite spirit and so that ended all of this but the jewish people of course whose hearts were hardened against the savior didn't get that memo and so they continued to offer sacrifices according to the law of moses until 70 AD when they were forced to stop and, and you know you gotta wonder that must have been part of what the Lord intended was I told you there shouldn't be any more sacrifices and eventually the circumstances were such that they couldn't now even though they continued to offer sacrifices after the atonement of Christ until the destruction of the temple uh, <clears throat> those sacrifices really didn't have any efficacy because Christ had made his atonement and he was the uh, the, the great and last sacrifice. Um, but nevertheless, that's essentially what we're talking about when we're talking about the cessation of sacrifices and oblations in the midst of the week. And it's kind of interesting also, if you stop and look about it, think about it, Christ uh, came, was born in what we would say was 1 AD, his uh, crucifixion occurred in roughly 34 AD. The destruction of the temple when the sacrifices literally had to end by, because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Think about the three and a half decades before the crucifixion of the Savior three and a half decades after the crucifixion of the Savior, when again, in the midst of that week of 10 years, between 1 and 70 AD, we have the cessation of the sacrifice and oblation by the atonement of Jesus Christ, who became the last and final great sacrifice. So you can see how these uh, images and how these foreshadows and types begin to tie together because what we saw demonstrated in the midst of the week of decades of time, of seven decades of time, 
we then see that repeating according to the prophecy of Daniel. We haven't lived it yet, but according to the prophecy of Daniel, when we get to that 70th week of seven years, at the midst of that seven years, there will be this cessation. And uh, the, the idea that the, the sacrifices and oblations will cease, uh, you have to understand that, that the, the word cease comes from the root word that means to rest. Um, and so it's, it's like the, the, there's going to be a rest where we're not going to have these sacrifices um, during the last half of the last weeks. Now, it's also clear that in this verse, it is Christ who shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Now, that doesn't mean that he personally is going to come in and do something to destroy the temple, the third temple, <clears throat> in the midst of the week. Uh, and that's why some people, frankly, interpret this part of the 70 weeks prophecy as somehow being the Antichrist empowered, and, uh, and he has some control uh, about what's going on in that 70th week. What it really means is that Christ ultimately and always controls the destiny of evil forces and their ability to exercise power on the uh, earth. And so uh, during that 70th week, these uh, people will uh, have the ability in some way to cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease by the will of God. Christ will allow it to happen, but it doesn't mean that he's the one that goes in there and starts uh, kicking people out of the uh, third temple saying, uh, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. <laughs> That's not what's going to happen. Uh, but one thing is for sure that in order for future sacrifices and oblations to cease, in the midst of the 70th week of seven years, in other words, we're talking about three and a half years before the second coming, in order for that to happen, they have to start again. The Jews have not offered sacrifices of this time, of this type, since 70 AD. They continue to hold uh, annual feast days. They continue to celebrate, for example, the Day of Atonement, but there are no bloody sacrifices that are offered of the kind that will cease three and a half years before the coming of Jesus Christ. So one thing we know and what this tells us is that at least three and a half years before the second coming, the Jews will have to build that third temple that I've talked about. They will have to, again, offer sacrifices. In other words, the sons of Levi will again make sacrifices as they did, did in the time of Christ in the temple of Herod before 70 AD. But those practices at that time were little more than the appearance, the appearance of godliness but they were virtually not authorized at that time because long before the sons of Levi were making uh, sacrifices in the time of Christ, um, the Levitical priesthood and the, the priests of Aaron, uh, the high priest, had become corrupt political appointees of the Romans. And this is why Christ uh, even went and cleansed the temple during his mortal ministry, saying that it had become a den of thieves. He derided 
the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites who were like whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones and an uncleanness, all right? So that's the nature of the uh, practices. And that's essentially the, the sacrifices and oblations will again start, uh, but that will occur before the sons of Levi are purged of sin at the second coming. So in Matthew 3, in verse 3, we have his prophecy that at the time of the second coming, Christ would sit as a refiner, and he, quote, shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So once the, the Levites become purified by the fire of the refiner as gold and silver at the second coming, then they will be able to offer their sacrifices um, as purified sons of Levi, consistent with the prophecy in the 13th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, which was the section where it was recorded that John the Baptist had restored the Aaronic priesthood and said, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah. And then he goes on and talks about how he, the Aaronic priesthood would be restored, and this shall remain upon the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. And that that particular prophecy gets fulfilled at the second coming. But in the meantime, three and a half years or more before the second coming, the third temple has to be constructed. Sons of Levi have to again make sacrifices in accordance with the law of Moses. And then three and a half years before the second coming in the midst of the 70th week of 70 years, there will be a cessation of those practices. And undoubtedly, it will come at the hands of the Gentiles that will be surrounding Jerusalem and will uh, again defile the temple in Jerusalem as they make efforts to destroy the temple as a whole. And it's kind of interesting because if you stop and think about it, the construction of this uh, temple, it's not hard to imagine that the Battle of Armageddon could well be something that could be triggered by the efforts of the Jews to begin the reconstruction of that third temple on the Temple Mount. I mean, they start to do that, things are gonna get crazy over there. I mean, if you think things are bad and they're crazy now, just wait for that, because I'm not saying that's how it's gonna happen, but I am saying, well, that's certainly a, a possibility of how the, uh, the whole battle of Armageddon could begin at a day and a month and an hour and a day uh, when uh, that uh, battle is going to begin again. And I, I've talked a little bit about all of that and how that factors into the uh, gathering, but the, <clears throat> this, this concept of having the, uh, the third temple reconstructed in Jerusalem is not a new concept. It's been around for a while. The Jews have been actively attempting to uh, make that happen, and their efforts in that regard are, uh, are frankly, they're, they're escalating. Uh, for example, in 1984, Jewish activists attempted to blow up the Dome of the Rock 
uh, on the Temple Mount. In other words, the uh, the place where uh, the Al-Aqsa uh, Mosque has been built by the Muslims. They tried to blow that up because uh, they thought we should <laughs> rebuild the uh, the temple. And in 1989, uh, Jewish activists attempted to uh, take like this three-ton massive rock and put it in place at the temple to act as a new cornerstone for the construction of the third temple. So you have these kinds of things that have been going on for decades of time. And if you today go on Google and Google third temple in Jerusalem, you're going to find all kinds of stuff that are going on where efforts are under where the Levites are preparing the, the clothing and the sacrificial animals and uh, other things of that nature. So, um, you know, they're obviously a, a minority group of activists among the, uh, the Jews today, but uh, for them it is a very real thing. And according to Daniel, it's a very real thing also. So, uh, you know, just kind of keep your eyes open a little bit on what's going on over there because you're seeing the uh, fulfillment of the 70 weeks prophecy unfold before your uh, very eyes and uh, so something to watch for so let me kind of try and wrap things up here a little bit we <clears throat> the last thing I want to uh, there's two more things that I want to talk about as it relates to uh, uh, Daniel 9:27 because after the sacrifices cease in the midst of the week, that is three and a half years into Armageddon, it says there would then be an overspreading of abominations. And this is why I consider the last three and a half years of this period to be the Great Tribulation rather than all seven years. Something very distinct and different happens during that last three and a half years, the same period when the two witnesses will be prophesying in uh, the city according to Revelation chapter 11. Uh, they will die, uh, Jerusalem will lose its protection, and then there will be this overspreading of, of abominations that will desolate the, uh, the city of Jerusalem, and it will be like unto the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and temple in the times of the Romans in 70 AD. That then becomes a foreshadow of the desolation that will occur during the last three and a half years. And in fact, it's going to occur very, very near in time to the second coming <clears throat> of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we'll talk about that in more detail. So I won't spend too much time on it now, but uh, trust me, it's not the last time you're going to hear me talking about uh, these conditions. And so those conditions of this desolation shall continue even until the consummation, which is uh, specifically the uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, Daniel, in, in chapter 12, verse 1, describes this future final desolation uh, that will occur at the time of the second coming. And his description of that desolation is that it will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. So as bad as things were in the prior desolations, and there's three of them, there was the desolation of the temple in Jerusalem in 587 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar. There was another one that occurred in 168 B.C. by Antiochus Epiphanes. 
And then the final one was the Roman desolation by Titus in 70 AD. And as described by Josephus, there were more than a million Jews who lost their lives, who starved during three years of siege uh, that the Romans had over the Jewish people. And so just horrible, horrible things happened during uh, those prior abominations of desolation. And yet Daniel himself, who's the one that prophesied this final desolation at the time of the, t the second coming said, that final one would be this time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. So uh, the sad news is kind of like my deep freeze. It's, it's a sad day. I mean, first my deep freeze goes out and now we learn <laughs> that the worst is yet to come. Uh, but uh, that's the uh, unfortunate reality. And finally, after those desolations have occurred, this purification process comes to the Jews, as I have described, then the last thing that Daniel predicts in Daniel 9.27 is all these things are determined to be poured out upon the desolate at the, second, at the set time of the second coming. Now that tends to sound a little bit like um, all these things are going to be poured out upon the Jews as the desolate people, but it actually means exactly the opposite, that at the time determined, that is the second coming, then the abominations that have been perpetrated by the Gentile nations upon the Jews and Jerusalem will be turned back upon their heads so that there will be desolations upon the desolators. So the desolate in this last part of this verse refers to the Gentile nations that are the desolators. They are the desolate. And so once the desolation on Jerusalem and the Jews ends, there will be this desolation on the desolators. The Gentiles will be destroyed. The more righteous remnant of the Jews that survive the final abomination of desolation will then be blessed. They will be converted when they see Christ appearing on the Mount of Olives and they will recognize the signs of the nail prints in his hands and in his feet. And when they ask him where he received these wounds, he will say, these are the wounds that I suffered in the house of my friends. And then they will know and recognize him to be the Messiah. And all of the pain, like a travailing uh, woman in labor, will be forgotten because a nation of believers and covenant people, the chosen people, will be born in a day. And so that's the, that's the 70 weeks prophecy. It's a, it's a rather amazing, incredible prophecy. You, you're probably feeling like well, it's also a long prophecy, even though it's only four verses long. But uh, this is part of the unveiling of uh, Jesus Christ. And if you understand the prophecies of Daniel, you tie them together with the prophecies of John in the book of Revelation. They become like this Rosetta Stone that has, has the same message of unveiling Jesus Christ in these separate languages, just like the Rosetta Stone had these three languages on it so that it lended itself to the uh, understanding of the hieroglyphics of Egypt. And in the same way, the Savior can be unveiled through the Rosetta Stone of the book of Revelation. So uh, 
I'm glad we had the time together today to spend. I wanted to let you know that next week uh, we'll be talking about the Come Follow Me lesson that will be covered in, uh, in between December 4th and December 10th. So that'll be Revelation 1 through 5. And so everything that we have done up to this point, I've been trying to give you some broad brush discussion of things that I thought would be important for you to know before you start or embark upon your studies of the Come Follow Me curriculum in the month of December. The, the time is woefully short to be able to discuss the uh, full content of the book of Revelation, but I do intend in the, in the uh, podcast next week to talk about the same five chapters that are set for you to study uh, during the, uh, the first week in December. We can't cover it all. I'm gonna. We'll be looking at concepts kind of at a 30,000 foot level, um, and I assure you that after we get through these these generalizations about the come follow me, my intent is to continue to dive into these things in more detail as we have done today with the 70 weeks prophecies and then the prophecies specifically of uh, John the Revelator. So I look forward to seeing you uh, next week and uh, I, I wish you well. It's Thanksgiving time so I wish you a, uh, a happy Thanksgiving or I hope you've had a happy Thanksgiving and uh, just remember to uh, to check for my book on uh, my website. I think it would be helpful and insightful for you to have the kind of detail that I'm giving to you as you study the book of Revelation because you're, you're never going to pick up all these concepts in your Sunday school class. And uh, so I wish you well and uh, I'll see you next week.